This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. It seems like every few months, Iran and the United States get closer and closer to war. It feels like two giant trucks playing chicken with each other, walking right up to the point where one miscalculation, one mistake, could mean the beginning of a conflict that spreads over dozens of nations and could tank the global economy. For the first time since World War II, the US authorized the killing of a senior member of a foreign government by an aircraft strike. The US used a drone to kill the second most important man in Iran, Qassam Soleimani, whilst he was in Baghdad on invitation from the Iraqi government. It's hard to state how big an event this was. It would be like the Iranians striking the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense while they were on holiday in Canada. Can you imagine what the US response would be to something like that? Likely war. Even as we record this, TV pundits and experts around the world are squawking that we should cross that line, solve it once and for all, and invade Iran. Some of these so-called experts claim the war would be quick and decisive, and not at all like the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but other experts have their doubts. So this week, we dive into Iran and what a war with Tehran would entail, how difficult it would be, and what options Iran has to use against us. But to better understand Iran and its internal systems, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. The Unwilling Combatant uh, Iranians tend to be secular people, even though they are ruled by a religious political establishment. And the irony is that Arabs tend to be far more religious than uh, Iranians, yet they are ruled by uh, secular and despotic regimes. Hilal Kashan is a major expert for the Middle East with a focus on Iran and the Persian Gulf. He is a professor of political science at the American University of Beirut and the author of the new book Hezbollah, A Mission to Nowhere. He joins us today. So, uh, you know, Iranians like Americans and want to be on good terms with the U.S. And, uh, and this, is, this fact is demonstrated by the presence of a very large uh, Iranian community in the United States. You know, uh, Iranians have, the Iranian public has no issue with the U.S. and they would like to have uh, good terms with the U.S. So for someone who doesn't know too much about Iran, how would you differentiate it from other Middle Eastern countries? One thing about Iran that sets it apart from other countries in the Middle East is that Shiism and nationalism merged since the 16th century to, to become uh, one entity. It is difficult to distinguish, to separate Iranians uh, for religiously and uh, uh, nationally. This explains why such a country that is so ethnically diverse has been able to maintain a great deal of unity. It is mainly because of Shiism. Uh, and when one talks about Iran, one has to keep in mind that it is a pluralistic country. Uh, there is a conception in the West about Iran. Many Westerners think uh, uh, 
uh, Iran bans the freedom of expression. Actually, Iranians can talk far freer about political issues than anywhere else in the Middle East, and that even includes uh, Turkey. So, uh, one, when we think about Iran, we need to think about a complex political entity that even though after the 1979 revolution and the introduction of a political system uh, that for Westerners seems to be medieval uh, in type, uh, yet uh, the Iranian leadership, despite what Westerners may think about it, has a highly mature and, uh, uh, and rational political uh, ruling elite. So you said a lot of Westerners don't understand how Iranian politics works. So I was wondering if you can give me a quick overview on the Iranian system. The Iranian political system uh, relies uh, on the person of the supreme leader uh, of the country. And the supreme leader of Iran controls the joints of the political system. Uh, Khomeini, after the revolution, wanted to make sure that the uh, revolution would last and that it would not uh, be destroyed. He wanted to make sure that the fate of the Iranian revolution will be different from the fate of uh, the Shah, who was ousted in 1979. Therefore, he created uh, new institutions such as the Islamic Revolutionary uh, Corps uh, to protect the uh, the revolution, and he also introduced uh, uh, an economic order and an intelligence community that did not answer to the conventional political system led by the president and the majlis. Uh, so uh, his vision had made it uh, extremely uh, uh, possible for uh, the revolutionaries to protect uh, uh, their order and make sure that it would not uh, collapse. And, uh, you know, when Westerners, especially the U.S. administration, talks about the possibility of uh, uh, of uh, inducing political change in Iran as a result of austere sanctions, one has to keep in mind that uh, despite the proliferation of protests and demonstrations in Iran, I find it extremely unlikely that these protests could lead to the ouster of the regime. So let's talk a little more about these protests. What are the people protesting against and what do you think will be the results? Now, what happened after 2009 was uh, the beginning of the sanctions, especially after uh, the uh, the coming of Trump to the presidency. Uh, the, the severe sanctions have created difficult problems for the Iranian leadership. First, you had uh, problems and protests over uh, increasing food prices, and then in 2019, uh, protests over uh, fuel uh, prices that went up and almost uh, uh, doubled in, uh, in, in the prices. So now we are encountering a new wave of protests that uh, have cut across the country's ethnic, uh, uh, ethnic dimension. But uh, again, you know, uh, these uh, protests are unlikely to cause the fall of the regime. Uh, uh, now, the supreme leader and the conservatives learned from the mistakes of the Shah, who was overthrown in 1979. You know, back then, the army remained neutral. 
and the neutrality of the army made it possible for the success of the revolution. Now the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps will not remain neutral in the event of a new wave, massive wave of protests. What the government, what the regime is doing now is that whenever there are protests, they send thugs to the street to destroy public and private property to justify clamping down on them. So here the struggle in Iran right now is between conservatives who want to undo uh, 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 Rouhani, probably dismiss him, and Rouhani who on the other hand wants to control the conservatives and take over their prerogatives and, uh, and vest them in the office of the president. So uh, the competition is tight in Iran, but as it appears to me, I think the conservatives, even though they are losing popularity, they remain in full control of the political system because they control the machinery of coercion that is extremely likely to take action in order to subdue any opposition. So a lot of this tension kicked off with Trump deciding to walk away from the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, uh, even though Iran was complying with all the rules of the deal. So now that there's no restrictions on the Iranians, how is the nuclear program viewed in Iran now that that deal's been torn up? Uh, Iran is a country where there is a national consensus on the need for a nuclear program. Uh, now, you know, back in 1975, then U.S. President Gerald Ford gave the Shah uh, uh, the opportunity to have full nuclear access, but the Shah wasn't really uh, interested in a fully developed nuclear program, even though he had the opportunity to do so. When the revolution took place in 1979, uh, uh, Khomeini immediate, immediately dismantled the nuclear program. He said, we don't need the nuclear program because after all, we cannot uh, face the former Soviet Union. Uh, but however, his decision, his ill-fated decision was regretted by the Iranian people because it gave the Iraqis an opportunity to take on Iran in 1980. So uh, many Iranians argue that had Iran been able to, uh, to complete its nuclear program and bring it to a fruition, then it would have been able to avert uh, the eight-year war with Iraq that devastated the economy and cost the country more than one million dead. The Iranians understand that the, that the U.S. is a constant player in the, in the region, especially in the Gulf, and they don't really want to upset U.S. presence in the region. To the best of my knowledge, the Iranians want to coexist with the U.S. in the Middle East. And of course, contrary to what Westerners may think, Iran is not really interested in confronting Israel. It wants to be a pole in the region. They know that the U.S. is there for good, and they also know that Israel is, has become a political constant in the region. Iran simply wants to be another major power in the region. Neither Israel nor the U.S. 
wants Iran to become a second pole in the region. And this is the essence of the conflict. I don't really think the Iranians take uh, the issue of the, the Iranian government take the issue of the nuclear uh, weapon too seriously. They simply want to have parity in the region and they feel that if they develop a nuclear capability, they will be respected by the international community and that their status as a regional power would be recognized. So the major escalation in all this was the US drone strike against Qasem Soleimani. Uh, can you elaborate who Qasem is and why is he so important to the Iranian government? Uh, Qasem Soleimani reported directly to the supreme leader and he is the head of the Quds Brigade of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. The Quds Brigade, you know, you know Al-Quds means Jerusalem. Al-Quds Brigade is the most important component of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, in 1979, right after the revolution, the Iranians introduced uh, their Arab policy. The Arab policy was the most important component of Iran's foreign policy. And Iran clearly wanted to export its revolution throughout the Middle East. And then they decided to invest in Hezbollah. Uh, and an opportunity came in 1982 during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And that's when they sent a contingent to the Bekaa Valley in eastern Lebanon and started to uh, to, pre to set the stage for the rise of Hezbollah that uh, formally made its debut in uh, 1985. Uh, anyway, the Iranians felt that the, the key for them to enter the region and influence its politics was to sponsor the Palestine question, especially at a time when Arab states had already abandoned it. For Arab publics, the Palestine question was the most important issue for them. So the Iranians decided to use the Palestine question as a means to infiltrate the region. And that's why they established the Quds Brigade or the Jerusalem Brigade. And Qasem Soleimani was the commander of the Quds Brigade and his mission was to infiltrate the region. Iran does not seek to go to war against uh, any Middle Eastern uh, country. Uh, Iran, you know, of course, I mean, they know, I mean, attacking Saudi Arabia would elicit an, an immediate American response. Iran, uh, the policy of Iran is to plant its agents throughout the region, and that was the role of Qasem Soleimani. To, to, to have uh, to support the rise of local uh, political parties that are close to Iran and that's why they invest uh, uh, in Gaza with uh, 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 with al-Jihad al-Islami uh, that's why they invest in Hezbollah their investment in Hezbollah has been successful Hezbollah now controls Lebanon and Iraqi Shiite uh, militias uh, control the country. So Iran tries to penetrate the region to the extent of its ability without antagonizing the U.S. The, the major U.S. interests in the, uh, in the Middle East are, of course, Israel and uh, the Gulf, the Arabian states on the Gulf. So Iran stays clear of uh, of vital U.S. interest in the region, but where it wants to exercise and extend its authority and influence, it does not do it directly. It does it through local agents. 
So the footage we all see of Iranian politicians crying death to America is just a small vocal minority of the government. That's, that, that's a minority, you know. I mean, look, even those who say death to America, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean much, you know. When the moment of truth comes, <laughs> when those Iranians get an opportunity to interact with the U.S., trust me, they will, they will, uh, they will not miss that opportunity. So where do you see the relationship between Tehran and Washington going? Uh, can we expect to see more close calls and escalated tensions in the future? Uh, I don't expect any change while Trump is president. Uh, if a change is going to happen between in, in the relations between the two countries, it will have to await the arrival of a Democrat, of a president from the Democratic uh, Party. But uh, uh, you know, uh, we will have to wait and see uh, who will win next presidential uh, elections in the U.S. But sooner or later. I believe relations will get better in the US, between the US and Iran because they cannot get worse than they are right now. By all measures, Iran should be one of our greatest allies in the region. And they once were. They were instrumental in supplying troops, intel, and arms in the battle against ISIS. And many more Iranians died fighting ISIS than US personnel did. Instead, we choose to side with our current ally, Saudi Arabia, the country that gave ISIS the majority of their funding. The Iranian people are far more secular and open to women's rights and political discourse than any of their neighbors in the region. With almost as much natural resources as the Saudis, there's a lot of pluses for the Iranians. Yet, due to decisions in Washington, we favor one over the other and almost bring ourselves to war over it. Iran is now in a tough position. It gave up its nuclear program in exchange for being able to rejoin the international markets, but are now weighing up the costs of that decision. Both Saddam in Iraq and Gaddafi in Libya gave up their nuclear programs in exchange for similar deals, and both were overthrown and killed by US-supported operations. In both these cases as well, the country splintered and entered into a new phase of bloody civil war, destroying the lives of everyone living inside these countries. Iran now looks to North Korea, who seem to be relatively left alone compared to Iraq and Libya. North Korea, who sits at the table as equals with Donald Trump and receives huge flushes of American money to stave off disaster and keep the country somewhat stable. Iran would be forgiven for thinking maybe nuclear weapons could seem like a ticket to respect on the international circuit. But how did the US get here, pushing Iran at every opportunity with sanctions and naval maneuvers in Iranian waters? Why is the United States willing to risk an international conflict just to curb Iran's regional goals? Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. The Beating of the drum. If you go back to 1953, when Iran nationalized its oil, uh, the CIA and the MI6 carried out Operation Ajax, uh, and they overthrew a democracy. So when you hear today America talk about democracy, it's really disingenuous because Iran was a democracy in 1953, and the U.S. Uh, overthrew the democracy. Khrvoriy is an educator at the Nazarbayev School in Kazakhstan. 
He's also the host of the fantastic geopolitics podcast, Geopolitics and Empire. He joins us today. Iran combines the consumer market and human capital potential of Turkey with the hydrocarbon riches of Saudi Arabia and Russia and the mineral resources of Australia. And Iran also has one of the world's biggest auto manufacturing industries, which could tremendously benefit from cheaper um, and easier access to intermediate goods and technology. So it's one of the hottest emerging markets uh, in waiting. One of the major escalations that kicked off this tension was the cancelling of the Iran nuclear deal. Do you think that was an overall positive deal or was it a bad deal, like Trump says? Well, of course, I mean, it was a positive deal, even from the Iranian side. Uh, I think recently the foreign minister Javad Zarif commented on on this, you know, uh, back in uh, 2015, you know, they were hopeful, the Iranians, because this would um, allow them to remove sanctions and and the Iranians were demonstrating their willingness to work with the West and to not uh, to assure the West that they were not going to develop enrich uh, uh, uranium you know for nuclear weapons and they would have been happy to get sanctions removed and to develop their economy and to kind of move forward but the US again has has sabotaged this the Iranians have not sabotaged this it's been it's come from uh, recently from the, the Trump administration. So it seems like they're always trying to make a, an excuse uh, one way or another, you, you know, to put an obstacle um, against uh, Iran. So I think the nuclear deal was a really good thing. So the other thing that kicked all of this off was the uh, drone strike against Qasem Soleimani. Uh, do you think that was an overall good idea or that was a bad idea as well? <laughs> well, that's. I mean, that's a... I, I probably would think it was a bad idea. You know, recently I saw there was a BBC documentary published last year where they interviewed General Stanley McChrystal. And McChrystal says in his own words that he didn't view Soleimani as an evil person, as a bad guy, that he thinks he's just Soleimani is doing what he thinks is right for his country, just like McChrystal is doing for, for, for his country. And I think the attack on Soleimani really just ruins the reputation and the the soft power of the U.S. among the hearts and minds of the people uh, in the in the Middle East it violates many laws you know international law so that that's really bad for the U.S. you know the, the U.S. should be an example in the model of democracy and the rule of law but Soleimani was invited to to Iraq you know by the Iraqi government so you you can't for, for them to take him out in Iraqi soil was, was um, I think, unethical and a violation of uh, international law. So ultimately, I think that's a bad thing and it could lead to more blowback, uh, definitely, for the U.S. So there are a few war hawks out there who believe that this war will be even easier to win than Iraq was. Uh, do you think that's the case? No, that's, that's crazy. I mean, Iran is... I think it's 90 million population. The terrain is, is I think, more difficult. And beyond that, the international situation uh, right now is is not good. You know, when recently after the attacks in Iraq, we had a uh, Iraqi militia leader say that Russia and China could replace U.S. security uh, in Iraq. So that tells you kind of the, the about. The, the sentiment there in the Middle East, as well as the, the alliances or strategic alliances that 
are happening with Russia and, and China. So, I mean, there's no telling what would happen. It would be a complete disaster on the military level. It will lead to a lot of death, probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of people killed, and then the likelihood to escalate. So recent British white papers indicate that there is a genuine worry amongst the Western powers that the Iranians would use their armed forces as well as their Iranian proxies in Yemen to launch sea mines and missiles into the strategic choke points of the Strait of Hormuz and the Bebel Almanda Strait at the end of the Red Sea. This would be cutting two of the world's most vital sea passages. What effect do you think this would have on the global economy? Well, I think that would tank the global economy. I, I've talked to best-selling on, uh, authors from different countries, from, from Germany, from, from Finland, from the U.S., uh, economic experts. And, you know, they say we're already in this uh, global debt bubble that just anything is, is ready to, to pop this, this bubble. And for Iran to do that, it would, I think, definitely push us over the edge. And I think that's one reason Iran is restraining itself from doing that because, it, I mean, sure, it, it's like the Iran's nuclear, it's Iran's nuclear option, you know, economic nuclear option, which would hurt everyone, including uh, Iran in the end. So I think they're biding their time and th that's not their first go-to choice, I, I think, is to, to close the, the Strait of Hormuz. But, you know, if, if the U.S. keeps upping the ante, uh, they might eventually respond uh, by doing that. So Iran's biggest regional rival is Saudi Arabia, who are very close with the US government. If war were to break out, could we see hostility break out also between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I think, I mean, if, if we really got to an escalation, that would definitely be a target because, again, it's part of the US, you know, Pentagon, NATO command structure, US, Saudi Arabia. So if it really got to a full-on war, you'd probably, yes, see Iran uh, as well go after Saudi Arabia. Although in recent weeks and, and, and months, we, we've seen Iran to try to reach out to Saudi Arabia to make, um, uh, in, in diplomatic terms, to make try to make peace or, or agreement. So we see a willingness from uh, Iran to try to uh, put the olive leaf olive branch uh, out but you know if there's a war that's a whole different story if this war does break out which side is Iraq likely to lean on are they going to go towards the Americans towards the Iranians or maybe they just try and stay out of it I mean Iraq just asked the US uh, to, to leave you know so and some of the the Iraqi militia leaders are, are saying uh, Russia and China could could replace them uh, I think a few years ago, uh, an Iraqi military leader said that if, you know, the uh, the problem of ISIS, right? This is an interesting quote. He said, if the U.S. stopped supporting the radical, uh, U.S. and Saudi Arabia stopped supporting the, the radical jihadis, ISIS would disappear overnight, you know. And so I think Iraq is increasingly turning towards uh, Iran. A change of regime has long been a goal of the US and Iran, but different administrations have taken very different methods to achieving that. Uh, the Obama administration, for instance, tried extending an olive branch to the Iranians in the hope to take some of the venom out of the situation. Uh, over 50% of Iran is under the age of 30, and younger Iranians tend to be more liberal and less bitter towards the US. There was some thoughts that extending this olive branch would result in a natural regime change within 5 to 20 years as this younger population gets more and more voting power and gets sick of the administration. 
Now, the Trump administration has gone for the complete opposite direction with the doctrine of maximum pressure on the Iranians and ramping the tensions way back up in the hopes of toppling the government. Which of those options do you think has more chance of succeeding? Well, yeah, I think Obama's approach, the Obama administration's approach was the, the wiser approach. I don't think we should be bullies. Uh, and the U.S. pretty much has the upper hand globally in terms of culture. You know, everyone around the world absolutely soaks up U.S. culture. And so I'm sure in Iran, it I don't know if it would be 20 years. I don't know how long it would take, but I think slowly you would kind of see that. But yeah, I thought that was the better approach. So if a war was to break out between Iran and the United States, who do you think the winners and losers would be? Well, I think every, everyone loses, but I think if we look uh, historically, definitely the U.S. will not be the winner because the U.S. has been losing the last 20 years. They haven't been winning any wars. You know, Vietnam, uh, they, they, they lost uh, in Iraq. We're not winning. We're not, we, I mean, we haven't won Iraq. Uh, Libya, we just created a failed state. We, we didn't do, win anything there. And so the U.S. hasn't been winning any wars. So um, I, I don't think the U.S. Will, will win. And this will just signal the decline of U.S. empire. Um, if the U.S. were smart, they, they, they wouldn't be doing this because they're hastening, accelerating the, the demise of their economic and, and political power. So, I mean, I'm an American. I want a strong America. And going this route will d accelerate the decline of our economy and military and political power. So the U.S. Is, is going to lose. And historically, you know, this will accelerate the decline of the U.S. empire. And then you'll have probably um, Russia and China and these other countries that will take their place and they will gain, you know, economically, culturally, politically. It's plain to see just how much of a hot potato Iran could be. It's a beehive that have kicked will unleash a swarm of problems across the region, and then across the globe. Yet we still seem to be lurching closer to an all-out conflict. So let's game that out. Let's really lay out how tough this could be. And to go through that war plan, we turn to our next guest. Part 3. The sequel is always worse. So I think there's there's no other way to describe it besides saying that it's very tense. I think it's stable compared to, you know, a week ago, but I think it's it's a very hostile relationship. The the leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, he just gave a sermon, I think today or yesterday where he's, you know, again warning the US saying that uh, you know, they view the video as very hostile and uh, that Iran is not going to be pushed around by the U.S. Jeffrey Miser is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Portland, as well as being a former professor of the National Defense University. He is also the author of the book Power and Restraint, and he joins us today. One of their main unifying points in Iran is is the slogan death to America. So uh yeah, it's been it's been very tense, and I think I mean it, it really comes down to incompatible interests about how the Middle East should work, how the power relationships in the Middle East should work, and they just have very U.S. and Iran have different views about 
about that basic fact. Who in the region do you think is the most hawkish? Who is pushing hardest for regime change in Tehran? Let's just say the most hawkish or regimes that are most suspicious or hostile towards Iran, you'd have to say, of course, Israel. Israel seemed to it different times during the Obama administration seemed close to actually maybe carrying out airstrikes against Iranian nuclear facilities. So they would be very happy to see a regime change in Iran, as long as it was a you know more moderate regime, of course. So a few people are saying that war with Iran would be fairly easy. It would be able to drive tanks straight up the highway into the capital, Tehran, much like we did in Iraq in 03. Do you think that's possible, or will Iran be a much, much harder combatant this time around? Iran is a larger country. Uh, it is a more unified country. And I think it has, it's much better practiced in, you know, again, asymmetrical warfare. So that meaning that, you know, the U.S. Would, might want to play a game with Iran where, you know, if... Now, God forbid there was an invasion of Iran, it would be, you know, we would first of all carry out airstrikes, then we'd, we'd bring in tanks and, and infantry and so on and artillery and want to fight them sort of in a regular conventional war. Uh, Iran was not going to play that game. They have proxy forces throughout the Middle East and even active in South and maybe even North America that they would carry out a, you know, widespread terrorist attacks on targets. They would um, hit Israel's, Israeli cities. They would uh, do all sorts of other kinds of uh, operations that would be far different from what Iran or that Iraq was capable of carrying out. There's concern that, that using land-based missiles and mines and other, other weapons that Iran could close the Strait of Hormuz, which would shut down the flow of oil from the Persian Gulf, which would it would hurt the U.S. It would definitely be a major price shock in terms of oil prices. It would also even it would hit uh, China even worse, and that would cause major heartburn for China, and they would be very upset by that too. So uh, it would just the capabilities Iran have are just dramatically. Uh, better, more diverse, more dangerous than anything Iraq ever had. So if the war does continue to escalate and the U.S. opt for a full invasion of Iran, where are they likely to stage the troops? What countries would allow the U.S. to be the jumping off point for this offensive? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, and it's not, I mean, I think obviously the U.S. would want to um, stage their forces in Iraq uh, but I think that would be very problematic because uh, Iraq has a good friendly relationship with Iran. Iraq is predominantly Shia Muslim. Iran is predominantly Shia Muslim. There's a lot of close relationships there after the fall of Saddam Hussein. Uh, then you look towards maybe um, on, the, on the east, you have in Afghanistan, which would be also a plausible option. And I think that, I mean, that government will also be very leery about, about doing that because, you know, whoever is going to allow U.S. troops to, to launch from, uh, they're going to get hit. So Iran has all sorts of ballistic missiles that could definitely hit you know, any part of Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, the other option would then be, do you have some for, sort of, you know, amphibious landing based out of Saudi Arabia in the south or the, the Emirates in the south? Again, that, that could be plausible, but I think 
no, no American military planner would want to have that job of saying, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna stage an invasion of Iran. Nobody, that's, that's a, that's a really tough job to figure out how to do that. And uh, I think anyone and everyone would think that was amazingly counterproductive to do something like that. So the other possible jumping off point for the US would be Kuwait, whose borders lie only 20 kilometers from the edge of Iran's flattest, most oil-filled region in the Southwest, Khuzestan. The trouble with that though, is that 20 kilometer gap is sovereign Iraq. It's their southeast corner and contains their biggest seaport of Basra. Now Iraq has already asked the US to leave. So if the US were to forcibly cross that gap to get through to Iran, do you think the Iraqi army is likely to retaliate against the US forces for what is essentially an invasion of their sovereign territory? I don't think that the Iraqi army is going to, you know, try and impose itself between um, you know, the US military and Iran if it comes to that. Probably the US would face even more types of uh, fedayeen or sort of irregular fighters that, you know, Shia militia that would uh, come down and stage uh, you know, guerrilla style attacks on, on US positions. And probably it'd be very likely that, you know, you to, to be able to stage an invasion like that, yeah, it takes, you know, months to build it up. They're building up forces in Kuwait, they'd be sitting around and then you'd have to, then you probably get some cross-border attacks of Shia militias, you know, attacking those forces from Iraq in, in Kuwait. Uh, the forces trying to move between there, the the Shias are likely to want to attack the supply lines and just kind of make life as difficult as possible for U.S. forces in the area. So if the U.S. don't have the appetite for a full war with Iran, they may go the Libya route and just use a series of prolonged airstrikes against Iran. Do you think that would be enough for regime change or would it just galvanize the people around the Ayatollah? <laughs> yeah, the, the second option there for sure. It's not... Yeah, there's some, I mean, almost bizarrely, you have uh, individuals who are advising the Trump administration, sort of like John Bolton is now out of it, but him and some of his sort of fellow travelers, they were asserting that, that the Iran, Iranian regime is somehow sort of brittle or something in that you shock it a little and show some weakness and the people will sort of rise up and there'll be this secular, uh, young sort of secular group of, of Iranians who will just sort of take over and say, oh no, we, we really want just a modern secular country and we don't support our regime or anything like that. So I think that's, that's sort of the same thing people said uh, about Iraq, that American troops would be welcomed, that there'd be no, no problems, that, that they'd be showered in candies and flowers and it would be a cakewalk and all these things. So they're saying similar things about Iran, that there's even the theory that, that killing a Qasim Soleimani would be a big enough shock to somehow show weakness of the regime and, and cause regime change, which uh, we can see it obviously hasn't been anything like that. So, no, I don't, I don't see any kind of, uh, you know, pure air attack kind of situation that would, that would definitely not cause regime change in Iran. So if war was to break out and Iran was to play its trump cards, for lack of a better word, in places like Bemal al-Manda and Hormuz, what is the likely outcome for the international community? Well, it's, it's a huge shock to the, the to global economy because you have, you know, overnight you have oil prices skyrocketing. 
that's going to cause you know inflation everywhere it's going to cause you know intense uncertainty and uh, a lot of fear and fears fear and uncertainty are like basically the two worst things for an economy so you you'd see a lot of countries going into recessions very quickly you know if not worse uh, you'd see on the other hand you'd see countries like Russia uh, experiencing a huge windfall uh, you know maybe like Venezuela Russia of course uh, would would fare quite well and actually to be honest the US is now uh, positioned to be an oil exporter so uh, in effect you know you might see the US in terms of the oil industry at least you know doing okay uh, I think that again what you'd see relatively clicky is you have East Asia that's highly dependent upon uh, Persian Gulf oil you know coming out from there from Saudi Arabia Iraq Kuwait uh, you know, China and South Korea and Japan being very, very upset very quickly and pushing right away for for peace, for you know, diplomatic talks, for ending whatever the conflict is. There'd be intense pressure there for sure. And yeah, like I said, you know, recessions would hit, you know, all around the globe for sure. So we can't overlook that this is an election year in the U.S. and Trump will likely want to come across as a strongman. Uh, how do you think a war with Iran will be viewed by the U.S. voting population <laughs> come election day? <laughs> I think it would be um, quite bad for his re-election campaign. Something less than a extreme provocation from Iran, then it would be you know highly unpopular, uh, and it would certainly hurt his chances. Again, if it's if it's if it's seen as provoked and a legitimate kind of uh, attack by the U.S., then that's that's a different different situation. But as it stands now, if the U.S., even if the U.S. were to start to carry out um, even limited airstrikes against Iran at this point or in the near future, I think that would be viewed as quite unpopular in the U.S. And I mean, the U.S. is still pretty, the people, I think, feel pretty exhausted from the wars the U.S. is is really still in in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I don't see another war being popular you know, right now. So if war were to break out, though, who would be the big winners and losers from the conflict? Well, I mean, obviously, I think the U.S. and Iran both lose tremendously. I think when you look at the, the Middle East moving forward, what what's sort of the configuration of power? I think that you have, to some extent, you have uh, Turkey sort of on the rise, sort of pushing its influence out uh, across its borders a bit. Uh, you have Iran doing the same thing. You have Saudi Arabia not essentially on the rise, but kind of the the defender of the status quo and allied more or less with Egypt. So you have kind of these maybe three poles in the Middle East of, of Turkey, Iran, and, and Saudi, Egypt sort of coalition. And I think... Assuming that a war between the U.S. and Iran weakens both country, but you know, tremendously weakens Iran, then you have Saudi Arabia, you know, coming out as a winner as long as they're not damaged too much in the process, and you have Turkey as being a winner, uh, and then that maybe Turkey, you know, can be kind of the big winner there because often when you have big wars, it's a country that's kind of on the sideline or that enters in in late that actually is the winner because it's not exhausted by the war. So they actually end up sort of leaping ahead in the hierarchy of power. So you could have you know, Turkey coming out and being able to exert you know, more influence to its south into the, the Middle East proper. 
uh, or you could have you know Saudi Arabia uh, doing a bit better uh, at that point too plausibly. It should be obvious by now how much is at stake with this war. So what if you were in charge of game planning it though? Sitting down and combing through the figures and facts and working out the outcomes that you are likely to achieve. What would a war look like then? Well, our next guest works with one of the companies who consults the White House on this very thing. So, we turn to our next guest. Part 4. The War Planner if you want to reestablish deterrence with Iran, and that Iran has been slowly pushing the United States um, on a military lens, you know, remember these are the Iranians have been actively trying to kill Americans in Iraq and elsewhere uh, via their proxies uh, for decades now. Uh, and then with the more recent incidents of be it the attacks on the shipping, the shootdown of the drone, and the like that the United States had to do something big in order to re-establish deterrence. Raphael Cohen is the Associate Director of Strategy and Doctrine for the United States Air Force for the RAND Corporation. He also holds a PhD in Government and a Master's in Security Studies from Georgetown University, as well as a BA in Government from Harvard University. The RAND Corporation is a US think tank that often games out and designs US foreign strategy for the armed forces and has designed many of the US war plans and policies since the 50s. It's hard to overstate the impact the RAND Corporation has had on US foreign policy over the last six decades. And he joins us today. Um, Qasem Soleimani would send that signal, such that it would send the signals to the Iranian regime such that if you push the United States to fall, you're going to uh, suffer a severe military repercussion for that. We know tensions are escalating on both sides, but do you think there's one side that is adding more fuel to the fire than the other? No, I don't think it's in either one's logic or best interest to want some sort of uh, a full-on conflict. Um, for the Iranian regime, it would mean at very least um, excruciating uh, pressure, both military pressure and then also domestic political pressure and even more economic pressure than they're already under. For the United States uh, and its allies, um, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are fresh memories. Um, a war against Iran would probably be much more difficult than either Iraq or Afghanistan. And I don't think there's real stomach for a large, another large-scale conflict in the Middle East. In fact, if you look at uh, the current uh, U.S. defense strategy, it really means try, really trying to push the Department of Defense and the national security establishment at large in the United States away from wars in the Middle East to uh, great power competition, be it with China or Russia, um, neither of which are solved by another conflict in, against Iran. Obviously, the United States has a lot of options open to them when it comes to war with Iran. What do you think would be the most likely war plan for the Americans? If you talk about war with Iran, I think you can think about war with Iran in a number of different ways. Um, I think one more likely military conflict would be something to uh, secure the Straits of Hormuz, so a more limited conflict, uh, trying to make sure that we have free access to the shipping and unhampered access to the shipping that goes through that uh, key maritime passage, in which case you're looking at a more, much more limited conflict. 
I could see an air power campaign that would be primarily designed around compellence um, to try to get the Iranians to uh, cease on their missile and nuclear programs. And what is Iran's likely response to a series of airstrikes? Well, so the Iranians have a number of tools uh, that they can use. They have, a, as you mentioned, a very well-developed uh, proxy network. Uh, they could go after American bases, be it in Iraq, or go after American allies, um, Israel most notably, um, using Hezbollah based in Lebanon. Uh, they also have a missile capability. We saw some of that exercised here with the most recent strikes on the airbase, Al-Assad airbase. Um, so you could see some limited use of that. Um, there's, there's downsides to using more conventional means. And it's also important to remember that the Iranian regime, while they have a very well-developed network of sort of proxies and unconventional options, their conventional forces are not really real, uh, simply not up to snuff uh, compared to the United States or to compare to a major Western power. Um, and that's thanks to prolonged sanctions and the like. Um, so you have a fairly, fairly well-developed conventional side, uh, unconventional side, a fairly uh, a more problematic uh, conventional military though. Now that the nuclear deal has been torn up, do you think the Iranians will dash for a nuclear weapon? Yes, I mean I think if uh, you know if if I was to put my myself in the shoes of Tehran at the moment. They see how uh, powers that without nuclear weapons get treated. You mentioned Libya earlier. I think that's a good case of what happens when the state gives up its nuclear weapons. And they see what happens to uh, states that do have nuclear weapons. Um, take uh, North Korea, for instance, um, which, you know, for all of its faults, that regime is still standing. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for having nuclear weapons. Um, it's a perverse logic, but it's a logic nonetheless. Trump has vowed he will never allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. But what do you think the US response will be if they announce they have acquired a nuke? Well, I'm not going to second guess the president. Um, the president has had multiple policy statements on a variety of different issues. So I can say that there are sort of different military options that you can consider with, uh, to try to prevent a state from gathering nuclear weapons. Um, you can try a, to take out the nuclear facilities. Um, the Israelis did this in the 1981 Osirak raid against Iraq. Um, the Iranian nuclear program is considerably harder to uh, diminish for via military force. It's more spread out. A lot of the facilities are underground. Um, so it's a military harder problem set, but that there are military options to do that if um, this administration or future administrations so, uh, should choose to do so. Again, it's more difficult. So what's your opinion of conducting a limited occupation, you know, occupying Khuzestan and Baluchistan to control the oil fields and the Strait of Hormuz without pushing further into the country? Well, we certainly have the capabilities to do it. The question is, do we want to do it? Um, so I see a limited occupation to try to clear the straits being, I guess, more likely than full-on regime change at this point. Um, that's not to say it's likely, though. Um, again, when you're talking about uh, pushing into places like Baluchistan, 
Um, you probably will end up with some sort of insurgency on your hands. The Iranians have invested a lot on, again, an asymmetric defense of their own territory. Uh, so holding that ground will be difficult, particularly over the long haul. Um, and it's also going to tie up U.S. combat power, and it's in a way that I certainly think the Department of Defense is actually not particularly eager to go down that route. So for people monitoring the situation, what signs or symptoms are we likely to see before this situation turns to war? Are we likely to see aircraft carriers move into the Gulf? Or what signs should people be looking for? You know, particularly when we talk about moving aircraft carriers, sometimes we move aircraft carriers as a signal, a strategic signal, as a sort of a signal for deterrence, not necessarily of impending action. But yes, but moving aircraft carriers would be one sort of sign. Buildup of ground forces, particularly on Iran's borders, would be another kind of sign. Um, I, I think more likely than all of that, what uh, the best sign for uh, the tensions with Iran becoming out of hand is if you saw a dramatic uptick in Iranian attacks, be it against shipping, be it, and particularly against American service members, that would be probably be a good sign of uh, that this conflict is going to escalate. Uh, I think the administration has been fairly clear-cut um, about this, is that it takes attacks on American service members very, very seriously, and that's, that in particular, I think, would be, if anything, I think that would be the most likely thing to trigger some sort of escalation in tensions. And which countries are likely to house this U.S. buildup? Well, that gets into an interesting question because, you know, when you think about some sort of ground action against Iran, uh, there's a question of where you base those troops, right? And, you know, one possibility would have been Iraq, but Iraq is debating on whether or not to kick out American presence altogether, let alone allow for a massive buildup. Um, just, and if you look to the other border, I mean, you could theoretically base troops out of Afghanistan, but it's really difficult to get forces into Afghanistan, so to use it as a staging base becomes less impractical. To anybody who thinks the invasion would be very easy and we would drive the tanks straight into Tehran, what would you suggest to them? Um, I would say read the lessons of the last two decades of conflict. Um, A, it would be difficult to get to Tehran. Even if you do get to Tehran, what comes next is anyone's guess, and if history of the last two decades have shown us anything, it tends to be a much longer, bloodier, more costly endeavor than anyone imagines at the outset. The situation in Iran is akin to drums of open petrol surrounded by oily rags and open flames. Each time we pound our chest for political points, or small strategic gains. We roll the dice on starting a conflict that is likely to cost millions of lives and break the global economy. A conflict that is likely to get out of our control without us even realizing. Whether it's US domestic political pressure, a miscommunication, a misjudging of a response or a radical splinter cell, or even a third party country trying to light the match themselves to watch their enemies destroy each other. We are far too close to danger here. Remember, it was one shot being fired that kicked off World War I. 
Who knows how little it would take to force both sides into a war they don't want. A war where everybody loses. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. Once again, it means so much to see so many people listening from all over the world each week. The comments we get have been amazing to read and it really makes all the work that goes into the show pay off for us. If you want to comment yourselves or help out the show, please go find us on Twitter at Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, at The Red Line Pod. It really helps us go after bigger names for these episodes when more and more traction comes on the show. As you probably realized by now, we had four guests this week rather than our usual three, because this subject was incredibly important to us. I myself have traveled to Iran and can honestly say it is one of the most beautiful countries I have ever visited, both in its amazing cultural sites, its beautiful landscapes, but most of all, its fantastically friendly people. This to me is a very personal episode, because I would do almost anything to prevent war between my own country and a country that so openly welcomed me into their homes during my travels. The people do not want this war, and we need to do whatever we can to prevent it. A huge thank you to our four guests this week. If you want to hear more from Halal, you can follow him on Twitter at HKashan, or check out his new book, Hezbollah, A Mission to Nowhere. You can check out Hervoyer on Twitter at Hervoyer P. Morish, and I highly recommend you check out his amazing podcast, Geopolitics and Empire. It's very similar to this show. Jeffrey Miser is also on Twitter at JW Miser, where you can read some of his amazing papers on the subject. You can follow Raphael's great work with the Rand Corporation at Rand Corporation on Twitter. He was an amazing look into the war and it was such a huge deal for us to have such an inside source on the show. If you want to hear more of the amazing additional vocals we had today, you can check out Mark Spencer and his podcast, Climactic, all about climate change and how it affects society. In any case, thank you for tuning in and we will be back in a fortnight's time with another episode. But for now, good night.